You'll need your strength for the dark days ahead. Mina? Doctor. Yeah? How did Lucy die? Huh? Was she in great pain? Yeah, she was in great pain. Then we cut off her head and drove a stick to her heart and burned it, and then she found peace. Doctor! Please. <laughs> so, Mr. Harker, I must now ask you, as your doctor, a sensitive question. During your infidelity with those creatures, those demonic women, did you for one instant taste of their blood? No. 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 Good. Then you have not infected your blood with the terrible disease that destroyed poor Lucy. Doctor, you must understand. I doubted everything. Even my mind. I was impotent with fear. I know. But, sir, I know where the bastard sleeps. I brought him there. To Carfax Abbey. Vampires do exist. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dana Buckler Show. My name is Dana, and I am joined by my regular co-host for this series, Ashley. Ashley, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you, Dana? I'm doing well, thank you. I'm uh, pleased to be talking to you again. This is uh, going to be part three of our ongoing look at the evolution of the vampire film starting in the 1980s. And on this particular episode, we're going to be talking about 1992's Bram Stoker's Dracula. But before we do that, I just want to send a, a big thank you out to all the people that have commented and mentioned and left, uh, left comments on Twitter and some emails thanking us for uh, the job we did on the Lost Boys episodes. Any thoughts on that, Ashley? No, I mean, it's just been amazing. I, I'm so appreciative that there's so many other vampire lovers out there. And thank you so much, too, for sending the DMs with suggestions of movies that you guys want us to cover. Please keep doing that because we would love to see the series continue beyond just our own conception. So we really appreciate their participation. Absolutely. Now, this one, you know, before we get started on this episode, this one I think is going to be a little interesting from the two previous episodes that we've done, referring to Fright Night and The Lost Boys. I think you and I both universally love those movies and, and love them a lot. And I think this might be the first episode, I don't know if it'll be the last, where I think you and I are not going to 100% see eye to eye on a film. I know, I know. Based off of your text messages, I think this is going to be, it's going to make for an interesting conversation, if nothing else. So. But it definitely, the film certainly warrants being on the definitive list that you put together for the vampire films that we need to cover. Oh, I, I completely agree. Yeah. I mean, it's you can't do a vampire series without Gary Oldman's Dracula in there. It just can't exist. So, And I think you and I had made the uh, the conscious decision. I know there's there's been a lot of people that have said, are you going to cover the, the Hammer films and the Universal Monster ones? And, and we're looking at doing that. But I think for the sake of keeping this episode at a respectable length, I, we wouldn't be doing it justice if we just sort of glossed over, you know, hey, you know, there, there was these Hammer films and there was a Bela Lugosi and Peter Cushing and all. We're going to get to that. That will be at the very least a bonus episode on Patreon, but we're going to get to that. But for this one, we're just going to really focus on the 1992 film in particular. So in order to tell the story, we have to start with the author, Bram Stoker, who was born in Dublin, Ireland on November 8th, 1847. Now, the first part of his life was very touch and go. He was bedridden till the age of seven with a number of mysterious illnesses. Thankfully, he overcame his illnesses and by all accounts had a very normal teenage life. 
Stoker attended Trinity College in Dublin, where he studied mathematics. And after college, he got a job as a civil servant working as a petty sessions clerk. While at the same time, moonlighting as a theater critic writing reviews for the Dublin Evening Mail. It was during this time that Stoker met and fell in love with Florence Balcombe, a celebrated Irish socialite who was previously involved with famed Irish poet and playwright Oscar Wilde. Both Wilde and Stoker knew each other, and Stoker's romance with Balcombe caused a serious rift between Wilde and Stoker. Balcombe and Stoker would marry and eventually move to London, where Stoker split his time between writing and managing a theater. Stoker had a few novels published to little or no fanfare. And now in 1890, he began research on a new novel with the working title, The Undead. And in 1897, the novel was published under the name Dracula. Now, while I was doing my research, I was surprised to learn that the novel Dracula was met with very mixed reviews. The book received some praise for its gothic horror aspects, but overall the reviews for Dracula cited the book as a mess. And it wasn't the, quote, bestseller you'd think it was. In fact, the book sort of drifted into obscurity in most of the world, with Ireland being the exception where the book was a hit right out of the gate. Now, what's interesting is that because the book was not in the popular culture of the time, when a German filmmaker, F.W. Murren, decided to do basically a ripoff of Stoker's story with 1922's Nosferatu, one could assume that Murren didn't think that anyone would make the connection between the film and the book, and certainly not Stoker, who sadly passed away in April of 1912. However, Stoker's widow did make the connection and promptly sued all parties involved with the making of Nosferatu. When the case was over, the judge ruled in favor of Balcombe and ordered all existing copies of the film to be destroyed. Now, this court case was such a worldwide sensation, with newspapers around the world printing stories on the ongoing case. All this attention brought a newfound interest to the source material, and 25 years after its initial publication, Dracula became a huge success, and the rest, they say, is history. Now, Ashley, before we sort of get into the the film itself, I wondered if you could spend a little time talking about the book itself, maybe a little bit about the plot synopsis. And since we are going to be talking about 1992's Dracula, which is what is considered to be a faithful adaptation of the book, I thought maybe you could talk a little bit about the differences. Yes. I mean, one of the reasons why I've always loved this movie is because it arguably is the most faithful adaptation of Stoker's novel. And there are some interesting things about the novel because you were talking about how it wasn't necessarily a hit. And I think it could have even been worse than it originally was. You know, the original title for the novel was not uh, Dracula. It was actually The Dead Undead, uh, which is not, it doesn't have quite the same ring to it. And also originally Dracula's name in the book was going to be Count Wampir rather than Count Dracula, which again, doesn't have quite the same ring to it. But we we pretty much accept the fact that Stoker was inspired to write the story of Dracula, um, because he was based on the the murderous uh, emperor, Vlad II of uh, Wallachia. And so Bram Stoker did a ton of research on him and on his great love, the Countess Elizabeth Bathory. And that's kind of where he got the idea of who Dracula was going to be. And so as you said, the book was published in 1897. It was a very classic example of a Victorian horror novel, um, gothic horror. And it tells the story of the Count's move from Transylvania to London. And basically the purpose of his move is kind of to spread the curse of the undead. And it's all about that and then the ultimate fight that he gets into with Abraham Van Helsing and all of Van Helsing's crew that fights on his side. Now, what's interesting is that in the book, Dracula does not have a first name. He's just referred to as Dracula. And so I mentioned previously about how it's based off of Vlad II of Wallachia. And in Wallachian language, Dracula actually means devil. That's what it translates to. And the name Dracula is given to anyone that distinguished themselves by courage, by cruelty, or by cunning. And so that's kind of where he got the idea from. The novel itself is told in a very classic epistolary format. And basically what that means is that we learn the tale not through characters interacting with one another, but through newspaper articles, letters, uh, diary entries, ship log entries, so on and so forth. So it's almost like the example of a novel's version of the found footage film where we don't actually get to see the story take place. We hear it after the fact, almost like someone has come across all of these things and they're putting the story 
together. Um, in the novel, Dracula is incredibly powerful. He not only can climb walls, he has super strength, but he's also a necromancer, so he can talk to the dead. And he also can control the elements as well as certain animals, the so owls, wolves. So he's an incredibly formidable foe. And we're going to talk a little bit as we go through about the main differences between the book and the movie when we get into the movie. But just to kind of start that off, you know, in the book, there are definitive limits to Dracula's powers. Like they spend a lot, uh, Stoker spends a lot of time unpacking kind of the the legend, the lore of, of what Dracula is and how he can be foiled. And so there's, for example, there's very um, extreme constraints about when he can change form from human to bat. There are constraints as to when he can move under running sources of fresh water, things like that, that they don't really get into in the movie. And then the biggest difference between the book and the movie is that um, Dracula doesn't really understand why he is the way that he is in the novel. There's a whole backstory that Coppola gives Dracula in the movie, and we can talk about that as we go, but Dracula doesn't really understand his origin in the same way that the character does does in the movie. And secondarily, the relationship with Mina is not quite as defined as it is in the film. I mean, it's there. Uh, Winona Ryder's character, it's there, but it isn't quite as defined in the way that it is in the film. But other than some very small examples, the movie is an incredibly faithful adaptation of Stoker's novel. It's almost a love letter to Stoker's novel. And I think some of the criticisms that we're going to get into today, I think that you're going to talk about, Dana, I think a lot of that is going to come from Coppola trying to stay true to Stoker's vision. And I think that'll make for some really interesting conversation as we go. On December 11th, 1991, Steven Spielberg's latest film, Hook, was released. Made on a $70 million budget, Hook brought in a little over $300 million worldwide. And although it wasn't close to the most successful Spielberg film by that point, it was a success, and success creates opportunities for all involved, and for Hook's writer, James V. Hart. Studios were curious and interested in what he had for his next project. Hart had penned what many considered to be one of the most faithful adaptations of Bram Stoker's Dracula. The script caught the attention of Winona Ryder, who coincidentally was taking a meeting with famed director Francis Ford Coppola. Now, if you're not familiar with who Francis Ford Coppola is... He is considered one of the great auteurs of all time, with directing such films as The Godfather, The Conversation of the Godfather Part Two, Apocalypse Now, The Outsiders, Rumblefish, The Cotton Club, Peggy Sue Got Married, Tucker, A Man and His Dream, and The Rainmaker, just to name a few. The meeting that Winona Ryder had set up with Francis Ford Coppola was in reality more of an exit interview. Ryder had been cast in The Godfather Part Three, but at the last minute dropped out to take the part in Edward Scissorhands, causing massive delays in the production. And this move resulted in Coppola casting his daughter, Sophia, in Ryder's role of Mary Corleone, a move that many believe is one of the worst casting decisions in history. But as you'll soon see, history will possibly repeat itself. Uh, it was while at this meeting that Ryder began talking to Coppola about the script for Dracula. Coppola was immediately intrigued, and this set in motion the production of the film. Now, Instead of getting into the whole pre-production history, I think we're just going to look at some points of interest. There are some serious points of interest that I want to discuss with uh, with Ashley. Uh, I will point out that Dracula was made on a $40 million budget. The movie opened on November 13th, 1992, number one at the box office with a little over $30 million. And the movie currently holds a 72% on Rotten Tomatoes. But the four key points of interest that I want to discuss with Ashley today are going to be number one, casting, number two, set design, uh, number three, costumes, and number four, special effects. So Ashley, let's take a look at the cast and let's talk about each character just for a moment if we could. Well, you know what, before we do that, can you just touch on the opening of the film? Now, as you mentioned, the the motivations or the, the reasons why Dracula exists you know, he said in the book, he never, he doesn't really understand why, whereas the movie gives us a, a, a prologue, if you will. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about the prologue. And this is a great way to introduce the character of Count Dracula played by Gary Oldman. Yeah. So, you know, the, the film, I think one of the strongest things that is held up about the movie is the way that the, the film opens because it gives us the motivation for why Dracula not only is the way he is, but why he is chosen to be the way that he is. Because a lot of vampire lore, it's all about 
choice and whether or not, like when we get into interview with a vampire, you know, whether or not what's the difference between someone choosing to be a vampire and how that motivates them and someone who doesn't choose it, that the choice is made for them because it kind of makes the vampire. And so we see Dracula choose to be the vampire because he damns God. You know, he goes out and he fights in the crusade on behalf of God and his wife, Elizabeth, uh, Elizabetha, that she is at home and someone has lied to her and says that he's dead. And so she kills herself. And so he comes home and she's dead. And so he decides that, you know, the man, the deity that he's been fighting for, that he's going to curse him, that he's going to damn him and vow to work against him and do everything he can to not be him. And so there's that great scene where he stabs the cross and the cross just starts bleeding everywhere and he drinks the blood. And in that moment becomes, you know, Dracula, he becomes the vampire, he becomes the dark Lord. And I think that Gary Oldman, because I know we're going to talk a little bit about casting from the first moments of the film it's obvious that Gary Oldman was the right casting for Dracula because I don't know if anyone else can do that guttural scream that he does. And it's so frightening and heartbreaking all at once that you feel the gravity of the choice that he's making, but you understand the choice that he's making. And he's just a He's just such an amazing actor in that scene. I mean, how did you react to it, Dana? Well, again, I always like to put myself in that little time capsule and to understand that this film came out in 92 and Gary Oldman's first American film was only in 1990 with the Phil Giovanno directed State of Grace. I think this is the movie that made me realize that Gary Oldman is one of the most versatile actors in history. And as I've got some issues with the casting, it's certainly not him. Uh, yeah. yeah, he is, he is tremendous in this film. And, you know, just, just for this opening, opening prologue, this, this cold open of, of why and why he is who he is. I felt the pain. I felt, I mean, I just thought this, this, this to me, like, like I mentioned to you that I hadn't seen this movie since it came out. And I watched it, of course, for this episode. And, and this really sort of got me ready for the film. Like, okay, I understand the motivation now. I understand the pain, but I do want to touch on, we've talked about a, a couple of different vampire films right now. We talk about the vampire lore. We haven't discussed how someone becomes a vampire. We know how somebody could be turned into a vampire. We know that a vampire can turn a human into a vampire. But this is the first film we've looked at that actually shows the inception of someone becoming a vampire. And I'm just curious, what about that did you find interesting? And have you found any other, in, during your research, have you found any other uh, sort of nods to the creation of a vampire? Sure. I mean, I think it depends on what vampire lore you're looking at. But, you know, the Anne Rice series, one of the things that the vampires are constantly struggling with is trying to figure out where they came from. A lot of what happens in that plot with Louis with Louis's character is he, you know, is seeking out Armand and he's seeking through Lestat trying to figure out who turned them and then who turned them and why did someone turn them? You know, where is this, you know, where is this nexus of, of vampire power that turned all of us? And of course, we get in that series into the Queen of the Damned and so on and so forth. But, you know, I think that question of, you know, their origin source, I think is a really interesting one because it gives, it gives not only more backstory to what they are, but it shades them in a way that they're not just monsters. They're they're, they still have that aspect of their humanity because they were created the same way that humans were created. It's just a different species. And I really liked this. You know, one of the complaints that a lot of people have, like a lot of my very good friends have about vampire films is that they don't find them overtly scary. There's a lot of vampire films that aren't as frightening as, let's say, a zombie film or a slasher film. They're just not as frightened by the concept of the vampire. And I think that that is what's so interesting about Gary Oldman's character is, like I said, he's frightening in that scene. And he's frightening as a man because he's this powerful warrior and this powerful warlord. And I think it's so important for them narratively to tell us that before he turns. And so he's frightening as a human. And then when he gains these supernatural powers, he becomes doubly frightening. And I also think, again, it's interesting because he's not just a monster. It allows for them to explore, you know, more deeply the reasoning behind his choices and what he wants and, you know, why he is the way that he is. I think none of that would have been possible without us seeing, you know, how he came to be. 
And as you mentioned, none of this is in the book. No, because the book, like I said, the book is written in epistolary format. So nothing is happening in real time. So while they explore some aspects of his history, we don't get this definitive tale of him, you know, stabbing the cross and drinking the blood and and all of that. I mean, we don't we don't have any of that. And, and, And also, you have to remember when the book was written, while the book was still graphic and gory, I mean, it's a little extreme in the opening of this movie. I don't know if Stoker would have written it that way because it isn't written in as it isn't written as blatantly a gory format as that opening is and i think it's beautiful and i think it's francis ford coppola at his best when coppola does things well he does things in a way that he frames these beautiful shots and you know winona Ryder's body lying there um you know and the blood just cascading over her and the you know and the priest anthony hopkins you know because obviously he's plays the priest in that scene you know with him walking backwards and just the way all of that is framed i think it's really frightening and a really affecting way and then going straight to that stark title card of dracula that now we know okay we don't need anything else we're in it i just think it's really effective in a way that the book isn't and because i do prefer the book in a lot of ways but this is in one way that i think that the movie is much stronger than the book because it's what movies do best it shows us rather than just telling us and and of course listeners are going to i think quickly come to the realization that I have not read the book and I'm looking at this solely through the lens of a movie. But I, the more we talk about it, the more curious I become. And I can tell you that I'm, I'm going to pick up this book probably when we're done recording because I'm curious about how much more in detail are these characters in the book? And is there anything that, that you feel like was left out? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I think that the movie explores the characters deeper because it isn't confined to the format that the that the book is written in. Um, you know, I think epistolary novels are always really difficult. People either love them or they hate them because it's a different type of narrative structure. Um, it's the same complaint that a lot of people have about like a Song of Ice and Fire series by George R.R. Martin, the Game of Thrones series, because that isn't written in an epistolary format, but the chapters are all written from the perspective of one person. So it's written totally in third person limited format. So we only hear the inner thoughts of one person at a time. And so you have to piece everything together. And so you've got people like me who read it in a linear fashion. And you've got other people who read that series, like they read all the Tyrion chapters, and then they go and read all of another character to, to piece everything together. And it's the same thing in epistolary novels, like sometimes they can be a little challenging, because you're not getting the full story. And so or at least all at once. And so that's what I think is interesting about the film is that we're able to actually um, explore them. And, and as far and, and I want to just say as a a bit of a, you know, announcement here. I have not read the novel Dracula in its entirety in a few years. So please, listeners, correct me if I'm saying anything incorrect. But as far as I remember, with regard to Renfield himself, you know, really, the only things we get about Renfield are from Dr. Seward's journals, like he describes him, and he describes what's going on. So we don't necessarily get um, information from him directly, like we do in the film that I can remember. And he also tries to... there's a lot more escape attempts in the books than there are in the movie. Renfield tries to escape repeatedly, you know, to go and get to Dracula. He is incredibly demented, and he's a little bit more developed through those interactions with Seward. But other than his character and Dr. Seward's character, because Dr. Seward is a much larger character in the book than he is in the film, you know, we get we get more in depth in the film, at least with Dracula and with Keanu Reeves's character and Winona Ryder's character than we do in the novel, maybe even some more of Van Helsing's character as well. They're a bit more fleshed out in the novel than they are in the film because Coppola made a really, I mean, I think a really obvious decision to focus mostly on old men Reeves and, and Ryder's character in the film. Right. And let's talk about, well, just, uh, we're going to get to, to Reeves and Ryder in just a moment here, but just talking about the, the <laughs> If you will, the uh, the three suitors for the character of Lucy, which is Dr. Seward, uh, Arthur Holman, and Quincy P. Morris. I'm just talking about strictly from the film, Richard E. Grant. He's a damn national treasure, okay, over, over in the UK. Let me tell you something. I just want to go off the record here. Not off the record. I just want to point out for a moment that if you have not seen the Melissa McCarthy film, Can You Ever Forgive Me? You, you've got to see it right away. It is Beautiful. outstanding. And he is unbelievably amazing in that film. And, again, a character I really liked in this movie. And I just thought I found him very interesting, along with Carrie El- Elway's 
and Billy Campbell. I thought all three were just so starkly opposite of each other, but all three I thought were just very, very good characters. What are your thoughts on the three? Well, I completely agree. I think that they're they're wonderful in it, and I wish they had had more screen time, because anytime you can give Carrie Elways more screen time, I'm all for it. I've always loved Carrie Elways as an actor. I think he's one of the most underrated actors, because he's good in everything that he's in. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, Robin Hood, you know, men in tights, and a, you know, a spoof, to the Princess Bride, or even to the original Saw, because I think a lot of people forget how scary and revolutionary the original Saw was, not like Saw's two through 207 that have come out since then. But the first one, I mean, he was fantastic in that movie. And so I think he's great. You know, Richard E. Grant, all of them. I think that they are they're wonderful in in the film. Um, and I thought they were perfect casting. They really were. And their chemistry was so great together, the three of them. Like, they kind of made this really cool little camaraderie, you know, because first it's over Lucy and their love of Lucy, and then over trying to avenge her. And I, I thought it was cute. I thought it worked really well. Yeah, I would have liked to spend, like you said, this focus, this movie really does focus mostly on Gary Oldman, which obviously, it's Dracula, Winona Ryder, and... Uh, Keanu Reeves and Professor Van Helsing. I would have loved to have spent more time with these three guys. I, yeah. like I said, I just really enjoyed that whenever they're on screen. And if I could just give a quick, quick tip of the hat to Carrie always in one of the great movies of all time, Days of Thunder, 1990, Tony Scott oh, directed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a, a, a coming soon for the 20th century movie club <laughs> it's oh. trust me that movie falls under the it's so bad it's so good it's so bad it's good type film oh geez <laughs> but we i digress on that one we're going to talk just a little bit about the character of lucy uh who was played by sadie frost and she is just very much not the prim and proper uh ladylike figure you would expect someone to be in the turn of the century yeah, I, mean, I think Sadie Frost is great in this movie. I think that she is beautiful and funny and a really nice breath of fresh air because so much of, and we'll get into Winona Ryder and into Keanu Reeves' performances, but so much of those two characters is very dour and sad. And she's just a, you know, she's just kind of this bright light, which is what's so interesting about her journey in the film and about how she's taken advantage of by by Dracula and destroyed by him. Um, and I think that she's wonderful. I think her performance is one of the best. And, and, and as we talk about the film, I've got some interesting facts about her performance, but I think she's great. Anthony Hopkins. Sir Anthony Hopkins just coming off of a win for portraying Dr. Hannibal Lecter in 1991's the Silence of the Lambs. So, I mean, he is listed here as the principal narrator, the priest, and of course, Professor Abraham Van Helsing. I need to know more about Van Helsing's character in the novel and then a comparison of the character that Hopkins plays in the film. Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, who doesn't love Anthony Hopkins? He's incredible. And I mean, right, I mean, right now, just his involvement with Westworld. I mean, he's so good on that show. He's just an amazing actor. A uh, one fun fact, do you know that he almost didn't get cast? They they wanted Liam Neeson oh, for the okay. role. Okay. And uh, scheduling didn't work out. And so Anthony Hopkins wound up wound up playing him. Um, I, I'm not I'm not a big fan. If I have any complaint about the film, I when I have a few complaints because you know we're going to have an honest conversation about it. But I wish they had spent more time on Van Helsing because he's a really interesting character. He's this brilliant scientist, and they they delve a little into that, but they don't really explain his backstory. And that isn't just in this film. That's all of Hollywood, in my opinion, all of Hollywood's adaptation of Van Helsing, including like this, the, you know, independent films that are just on Van Helsing, like the solo films, uh, what, who started that? Hugh Jackman, I yeah. think, played Van Helsing. Yeah. You know, no one has ever really captured his character well. And I think that there is a, and there's an opportunity for somebody to do a treatment about a film about Van Helsing correctly, because he's a fascinating character because he takes on, he's just a man but he takes on these supernatural beings and i think it's it's really interesting but anthony hopkins is great with what he's given i just wish they had spent more time on it because he is in, in as far as my my you know remembrance goes he's a bigger character in the novel than he is in the film and kind of in the film it's one of those you know one of those things where you kind of have like the 
in a typical movie, oh, well, he's just the source of all knowledge. And there's no question of, well, how do you know these things? And why are these things it? And where did you get this information from? Like, you know, there isn't a whole lot of explanation of that. It's just kind of accepted of, okay, he's the expert and he's going to be our source of knowledge. And I wish there had been a little bit more, you know, explanation. We could have cut some of the Keanu Reeves scenes out to make way for that, right? But mm-hmm. but it didn't happen, so... And uh, we'll talk a little bit now about Winona Ryder's character, Mina. And again, we talk about how this film has a cold open where she also plays, am I pronouncing this correct, Elisabetta? Yes. Elisabetta, who is the love interest of uh, of Dracula when he's off, when he goes off to fight the Crusades against the Turks. This is where I start to have problems with the film. And, oh, geez. And I'm, I'm a fan of Winona Ryder. Uh, I love a lot of her work. I'll, I'll save my thoughts for a moment. How how was her performance in this film? And if you could talk a little bit about the character of Mina in the novel as well. So I love Winona Ryder. And this was, I mean, 92, we're looking at, you know, her her height, right? Like she was never going to grow much bigger than the start of the night through like the mid nineties. That was her, it was pre, you know, shoplifting Winona Ryder. It was pre stranger things, acceptance speeches where all the memes of all those weird faces she's making, like this was classic Winona Ryder. So first and foremost, I think she's absolutely beautiful in this film. I agree. Yeah, I think she's just, she looks like a painting in so many of the scenes and she just looks beautiful in those Victorian costumes. I'm not, I don't buy, and I don't think it's really her performance as much as it is. I've never really bought the chemistry between she and Gary Oldman. And I think that's where this movie loses a lot of people is that they don't buy their great love because they don't look right together. And it doesn't make sense because he's an incredibly handsome man. She's an incredibly beautiful woman. Maybe it's the age thing, or it also maybe the fact they hated one another when they filmed this movie. She would, I mean, there's all of these stories about how she would throw tantrums working with him on the set. She hated him. And they both have talked about it since then. And they're like very close friends now. And she talks about how she was just very young when she filmed this. And it was just youth and her believing that she was more important and better than she was. And maybe we're feeling some of that when we watch the film. But for me, I don't necessarily want to criticize her performance as much as I want to criticize the fact that whatever the reason is, I don't buy their their chemistry. Does that make sense? It does. And that's exactly the same. Well, one, she doesn't really have a handle on the on the accent as well, but we'll sure. get to that in a moment. But <laughs> you're right. There, there was nothing erotic about the two of them when they were together. Right. It just felt as a viewer, it felt uncomfortable. And and that happens from time to time. And it's you bring up an interesting point about how, you know, she she was kind of she had done Beetlejuice, she had done Edward Scissorhands. I mean, she was really on the rise. And again, I I hearken back to what I said earlier about the fact that Gary Oldman was not the Gary Oldman up to date. This was him still coming into his own. So she may and I'm only speculating here, but she may have thought that she sort of had more clout and could and, and could kind of throw her weight around a little bit more than him. And that's kind of what the stories say. And, and again, it comes because I don't buy a lot of gossip. I mean, I try not to listen to gossip, especially in Hollywood. But I mean, that comes from like her own mouth. Like she's talked about the fact that I mean, and she used the word tantrum, like she used to throw tantrums on the set with him and that she's apologized to him profusely, you know, in modern times, like today, you know, she's apologized, like, I'm so sorry, I was so immature. And like I said, they're friends, but I think you can you can feel that and Dracula's supposed to be sexy. And we'll get into that as we kind of go. But I think Gary Oldman is fucking hot in this movie. And so especially like in that love scene that they have when she's in um, Dr. Seward's office or his, you know, his room at the hospital and while they're all trying to go off and burn his his coffin and he comes to her like that's supposed to be a very erotic scene. And there is literally no spark at all between them. I mean, the scene where he's, you know, the wolf and uh, the werewolf and he's, you know, having sex with Lucy has more heat to it than than that scene between the two of them. And that's just kind of sad. It's a missed opportunity, if nothing else. It is. And and by all accounts from from some of the, 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 the wonderful people I've had an opportunity to speak to who, who know Gary Oldman, he is by all accounts, one of the nicest people 
out there. Like he's just a just a wonderful person and uh, very humble when he meets people. So anyway, we'll close the chapter on that. So, but um, that's going to bring us to one other actor in this wah, film, wah, wah. and I want to <laughs> preface this by saying that I fucking love Keanu Reeves. All right, that is that is my guy. All right, from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure to Point Break. Everything that he has done, there's been a few duds here and there, to the unbelievably awesome John Wick movies, to The Matrix. Where where do I start? I mean, he is the man. I love him. Speed. Come on. What are we talking about? He is fucking horrible in this movie. He is absolutely. Yeah. And we ta- I talked about the, the miscasting that was Sofia Coppola playing Mary Corleone in The Godfather Part 3. And, and no disrespect to Sofia Coppola, she has gone, gone on to become uh, an incredibly accomplished director and an amazing storyteller. Her performance struggles a little bit in The Godfather Part 3. Dare I say, she is better in this movie, in, in The Godfather Part 3, than Keanu is in this film. What are we even doing, Ashley? Yeah, I mean, it's it's bad. You know, you talked about Winona Ryder and the accent. I mean, I would take her accent any day Absolutely. over Keanu's accent. And again, it's just so sad because he's beautiful in the film. He looks great in the clothes. I get why they casted him. Like, cause he's, and he and Winona Ryder make a really beautiful couple. I mean, they do. They look great together. And the way that she and Dracula don't, she and Keanu Reeves do. But I, so I have a couple of problems. First is the accent, which I've already mentioned. Second is he phones in so much of his performance. And and he's been interviewed about this film many times. And he said that he should have said no to the movie. And he regrets not saying no, because he had just come off of filming and filming and filming. He had gone back to back. And he said, by the time he got to this, he literally just had nothing else to give. And so he admits that he phoned in a lot of his performance. And then the final thing too, is when when they give him the gray hair, he just, it makes it even worse, right? Because he already looks so out of his league. And then they give him the gray hair and then he just looks ridiculous. So, you know, but I mean, yeah, I mean, critics agree. I mean, even when this film came out, critics agreed that he they panned him, universally panned his performance. And I don't think anyone who loves this movie, myself included, loves this movie because of Keanu Reeves. So, you know, let me ask you this. Could they have not have taken, you want Keanu Reeves in your movie? Awesome. I think that's a great idea. Typically on paper, Keanu is, he's a, he's an A-list actor. Even at this time, he hasn't done speed yet, but he's already done point break. You know, he's, he's well known. Take one small creative liberty with the story and just say that he is, he's from America. (laughs) <laughs> and he's he's moved to London. You know, he's taken this a dream job as a solicitor in in London. So just make one small creative change, okay? And let him just talk like let him let him use his normal American accent. And I think people would have been more forgiving. Would you agree? Disagree? I, I agree, but I'm I'm gonna actually. I think that you're going to really, please don't fire me from the podcast when I say this. Um, But I I do love Keanu Reeves, but I don't actually think Keanu Reeves became a good actor until like the late 90s. I don't, I enjoy his performance in some films, but I don't think he's necessarily good in them. I think that the Keanu Reeves of today is a much better actor than he was in the early 90s. I just don't think he had quite, I don't think he quite figured it out yet. And I don't think he'd quite figured out what his strengths were yet. And so once he got with the Wachowski siblings in the the Matrices and the Matrix movies, I think that that is about the time that he really figured out his shtick, which is why I think his best performances are as Neo and then as John Wick. And those two characters have a lot of similarities in terms of the way he plays them. I don't think he's a very accomplished actor, though, other than in that type of role. And he's badass in those roles. I'm not arguing that he isn't. And I enjoy him in Speed. I love him in Bill and Ted. But, you know, are those movies we're writing home about acting awards? No. I mean, everybody remembers Sandra Bullock in Speed because she's phenomenal as an actress in that movie. You know, we remember... You know, Bill and Ted is being silly because that's what it is. You know, I'm not a fan of Point Break 
at all. Never have been. Um, I know. That's why I said don't fire me from the podcast. I've never been a fan of that movie. That's a Catherine Bigelow directed film. I know it is. It's just, I, I, I just, I, there's some, it's my least favorite Patrick Swayze performance. It's, I just, it's just not a film that's ever connected with me. I get why people think it's fun. And I think the original is a lot better than the horrible remake that came out. I've never seen the remake. Ago. I've never seen don't. the remake. I'm not. Do wow. yourself a favor and don't. But, you know, but I, I just don't think that Keanu, he was hot. That's why people liked him. They were attracted to him. And I think, honestly, I don't know this, but I think they wanted a sex symbol in this movie. And Keanu Reeves was hot in the early 90s. I mean, he still is hot today. But, you know, you had hot and Winona Ryder and you had hot and Keanu Reeves. And I think they made the casting for that choice rather than making the casting with someone. Like, I would have loved to see somebody like, okay, and you're going to laugh. But somebody like Ethan Hawke in this role. I, 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 that's unbelievable. Now, where did you come up with that name of all of right. all the names? I know. And if Mike were here, my fellow founder of the Ethan Hawke Anonymous Club, um, not so anonymous, um, that he would be supporting me in this. But somebody like him that was an early 90s sex symbol, right? And that he would have just been better. I mean, just somebody who had more acting chops. I, I just don't think Keanu was ever, even if you gave him an American accent, I don't think he ever was going to be right for this role and that you know and that and that's fine because it's over right but he's so bad in it and he has said he hates his performance in it i mean i love that about keanu reeves he's super honest about his performances and even he has said that he doesn't like it so okay all right so i'm just gonna read i'm gonna read a, a line here from wikipedia now take this it's wikipedia so take this as a with a grain of salt because it's Wikipedia. But it, it does say that in the months leading up to the release of Dracula, Hollywood insiders who had seen the movie felt Coppola's film was too odd, violent, and strange to succeed at the box office, and dubbed it Bonfire of the Vampires after the notorious 1990 box office bomb, The Bonfire of the Vanities. It says, due to delays and cost overruns on some of Coppola's previous projects, such as a Apocalypse Now and One from the Heart, Coppola was determined to bring the film in on time and on budget. To accomplish this, he filmed on sound stages to avoid potential troubles caused by inclement weather. And that is going to bring me to the second point that I wanted to discuss with you, and that is set design. Now, this movie, for me, and again, this I'm speaking for myself, this movie very much felt like a low-budget film. When I, when I was looking at the set design, I know that sounds crazy, but it didn't feel like a, a sprawling epic to me. And I read about these sound stages after rewatching the film. Like I didn't, I didn't put the, I wasn't sitting there going, yep, that's fake. That's not real. That's not real. It didn't, it just didn't feel like it had that epicness to it. And putting aside the Keanu role, which immediately took me out of the movie, the film to me, felt very small and very contained. And I wonder what you thought of of the set design. Yeah, I'm, I, I completely agree with you that it feels B-movie, right? It yes. feels very B-movie. Yes. Like, I, I think a specific scene for, for those of you that have watched it recently or are going to watch it, look out for that scene where the carriage is taking Keanu Reeves to the castle for the first time. And they do that pulled back wide shot. And it's that incredibly red sky with the blue flames. Like, you know, it's it's very B-movie in that moment. Um, And actually, 99% of this film was produced on a soundstage. And I actually love that about it. I don't need my Dracula to feel epic because it is a very contained story. It's not the type of story that you know, is this big, expansive world. It's Transylvania and it's London and that's it. And I like the fact that Coppola kept it so contained. And and I don't know if any of it was intentional because I, I know that there's a lot of things that have been written about how Coppola and his team were trying to pay, you know, homage to Nosferatu and to the Bela Lugosi, you know, Dracula films. And so I, I guess I always gave them more credit and was like, oh, well, they're doing this in a way to make it kind of campy with some of their choices. Maybe I gave them too much benefit of the doubt. Maybe it was due to budgets, but I've always appreciated that it, that there's aspects of it that feel kind of, kind of B-movie because I, I personally have a huge, I mean, that's why I like Fright Night so much. I have a huge uh, soft spot for B-films and I, I liked that about this movie. But again, maybe I'm giving a lot more credit than they deserve. Well, no, no. I mean, and, and, but, but the thing is for me, and again, 
I saw this film 92, 13, 14 years old again on, on VHS on a, you know, a, a picture tube television, like just not the ideal setting. So I, I had no real memories of this movie, but here I am sitting down last week and this is a Francis Ford Coppola directed film and immediately I conjure up images in my head of Apocalypse Now and The Godfather and The Godfather Part 2 and even The Conversation. And these are movies that are are grandiose in scale. And I guess Coppola sort of subverted my expectations with this film, which, you know, again, finding out after the fact that this was an intentional choice, I think that did play in a little bit of my disappointment for the film was that I was expecting, well, Coppola is going to do Dracula. This is going to be a sprawling epic. This is going to be Dr. Zhivago level. And, uh, you know, again, maybe as time goes on, I will reel in those, reel in that disappointment and learn to appreciate the film for what it is. But my expectations were so subverted. Yeah, and I think that that's all really valid. I, I do, and I'm not. I'm not arguing for the film, but just you know, just a, a food for thought. I think that you know the Godfather films they are epic because they are so expansive because it's all about power and money and family, and so he creates a world that's expansive to match the themology of Mario Puzo's book. And I think that it works. Apocalypse Now is an entire country. It's a war. There's all of this gravity. And I guess I just I like the fact you can tell where they spent the money in this movie, right? They spent the money on costuming. Yep. They spent the money on some of their casting choices, whether they were good or bad. And they spent the money on effects. And we are going to get into effects in a second. But even I think a lot of times people think that practical effects are cheaper than any other kinds of effects. And while I'm sure they are, that doesn't mean that they're cheap. Um, it doesn't mean they don't cost a lot to do if you're going to do them correctly. And so you can see where they spent their money. So I, I think that if they're going to spend the money that they spent, I would prefer for them to spend it in the ways that they spent it. And I didn't need it to be, like I said, I didn't need it to be expansive because it was just London and because it was just Transylvania. And it's not even the whole of London. It's just these two locations in London. And, um, but I, I can definitely see the criticism you're saying because it is a Coppola film. And I, I didn't see it with the thought in mind that it was Coppola. I saw it of, oh my God, it's the Dark Lord that I wish would turn me and I would follow for all eternity. You know, that where my mind was. Um, but I get, I, I think that that's a really valid and uh, I think it's a crucial critique that you're saying that I hadn't actually considered. You know, you mentioned the, the costumes and this is where I'll give a, a, a rousing, you know, positive thumbs up. You know, I thought the costume design in this film was brilliant. I loved his costume from the the opening scenes, you know, his armor when he goes off mm. up to fight in the Crusades. Like that, this was, I, I'm getting tongue-tied here. Like I was, I was, I absolutely love the costume. I can see where they spent the majority of the money. I get well, it. And that's why they won the Oscar. Yeah. I mean, they won the Oscar for costumes. I mean, they, they won, what did they win? Three. They were nominated for four, but they won three, I think. And you know, what's interesting is one the, the one that they were nominated for, but didn't win was production design. Yeah. <laughs> <So>. Imagine that. <laughs> but, you know, they're, they won for makeup and hairstyling, best costume design and best sound editing. And, and I think that those three were phenomenal because we didn't even mention, because if we're going to talk about costumes, I think makeup and hair goes along with that because it, it you know, accentuates what they're doing. And come on, like Gary Oldman's wig when he's Dracula at the castle. That is such a badass look with that, you know, that silk. I don't even know what to call it, you know, robe train thing yeah. that he's got on with those big old nails and how white the pallor of his skin with the wrinkles and then that big hairdo. I mean, he's so frightening, but yet still so strangely like appealing, like, you know, there's something about him and it was just so well done. And then the turn from that to Dracula in London, I mean, those little glasses that he has on, I, I put a gif uh, yesterday online, I was tweeting about how we were recording and it's that scene where he's got that top hat and that those beautiful curls and those tiny little glasses. I mean, he's such a badass. I mean, I want those glasses to wear now in 2019. You know, I mean, I think they did such a great job and we haven't even talked about Vampire Lucy 
No, yeah. Like no, no, no. Lucy Vampire Bride, that outfit, like that is a total must-do cosplay for me that I've yet to do because that is one of my favorite looks from any horror film ever. She's so frightening. And I and I don't know if you know this or not, but the child that she's carrying in that scene, that child was terrified of her. <laughs> the child was not acting. The, the child wasn't supposed to cry. And when she picked the kid up, the, the kid tried to get away from her and was just sobbing because he couldn't go back or because it couldn't go back to um, its mother. And like that, I mean, because she was so frightening in that scene, her makeup, everything was just beautiful. So I, I think it's top notch. Now, this is going to come really out of left field. But when I was watching the movie and, you know, we have we have the count when Jonathan Harker first goes to the Count's house, he kept reminding me of Mr. Burns. And I know that sounds awful, but that's all I kept seeing was Mr. Burns. And I know that's, that's, I mean, I appreciate the makeup effects and everything, but that just, just should speak to just how, how good the makeup and the hair and everything and the way he was carrying his hands. I was like, that's Montgomery Burns. Oh my goodness, Dana. <laughs> so. Well, you know, but beyond that, too, I mean, we haven't talked about the three sisters yet. No, no. no. The three sisters, I mean, their costuming, and I know they don't wear much because they get naked really fast, but even what they're wearing and the way that they did the subtlety of their fangs, I mean, all of, I mean, there were such smart choices made from costumes to makeup to hair that that, for me, that's what made it epic. That's what made it interesting because Dracula had never been portrayed that way before. He'd, you know, he always has the cape with the, you know, the popped collar and, you know, the slicked back black hair, you know, that's very campy Dracula. And this was a totally different take on who Dracula is and what he is. You know, this wasn't the blah, 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 you know, Dracula. This was a, I'm gonna fucking eat your soul, Dracula. And I, he couldn't have done that no matter how powerful Gary Oldman's performance was. It wouldn't have been as powerful without that look. Both looks, both the modern Victorian look and then the the silk robe thingy. You know, both of them were so smart and so incredibly new. And I, I think that's brilliant. Now, uh, before we wrap things up, we've got to touch on a couple things here. One, we're going we're gonna to look at the special effects first here. Now, I'm not talking about the practical effects. Now, the practical effects, I thought were, were, were really well done. But from what I was reading, Coppola really wanted to make this an homage to the 1920s, 1930s B-horror movies. And he opted to, instead of hiring the best special effects artist, well, he did initially hire the best special effects artist in the business at the time, and he ended up firing them because he they were insistent that there's this newfangled technology called computer-generated imagery, or CGI, that you'll be able to pull off the effects so much better. And he ended up firing them and going with tried-and-true-tested special effects methods dating all the way back to the 1920s. Now, his decision to do this is a point of contention for me because even though I am against CGI, I think there was a lot of effects that were developed in the 1970s and the 1980s that were not CGI that I think may have worked better. But Ashley, I'll turn it over to you. What are your thoughts on some of the special effects that are done in this film? So my favorite example of a practical effect in this movie is the uh, bat suit that Gary Oldman yes, wears yes. when he turns into the bat. That is still so incredibly terrifying. I mean, that is such a great example of how practical effects and makeup work. Uh, really fun fact, though, Gary Oldman hated it. He thought it looked really stupid. And he thought that everybody was going to laugh in that scene. Um, not, not necessarily the audience, but the actors when they saw him in it. And so Francis Ford Coppola, before they filmed, had Gary Oldman, before he got in the bat suit, go whisper the most terrifying things he could think of in every one of the actors' ears about like what he would do to them. And then he went and put on the bat suit. And that's how they got those reactions. It kind of put them in this, you know, in kind of this headspace, which I think is kind of interesting. But I think it's Still, I mean, in 2019, it still looks just as good as it did in 1992. Um, now, some of the, you know, the flame things, you know, the blue, the weird 90s blue flamey things yes. that are in so many movies. I can't even think how many. You know, those are stupid. But I, I think that the gore looks great. I think that the... Um, 
the practical effects look good. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I'm curious which effects you didn't like, because maybe that would be more of a targeted conversation, because I'm just going to like gush all over. Well, there's just a couple of things like when, when, when Keanu is going to the castle, and they're just getting ready to go through the gates, and there's the blue, the blue yeah. flames that are just down, lipping up and down. Yeah, the and, flamey things are stupid. Yeah, yeah and that's, I mean, just little things like that completely take me out of it. And obvious matte paintings that are in the background of certain shots, because again, we're, we're, we're shooting on sound stages. And just Obviously, there looks like there's a little bit of uh, green screen going on. And I don't mean green screen for digital purposes. I mean, like, just a lot of these shots looked campy and looked cheap. And I now understand that that was by design. And I feel part of me feels a little bit like, well, you should have done a little more research before you sat down and watched the film, because I feel like I might have a different appreciation for it. And I'm a little torn. I'm a little torn on how I feel about some of this because when, if it's done intentional, if it's done with love and as an homage, I'm a lot more forgiving. And so I am honestly a little conflicted on it. Yeah. I, I mean, maybe, maybe the thing that would have been better is for them to have been over the top with it because when something is a conscious choice it's going to look like an accident if you aren't intentional in the way that you do it and so perhaps like you make the decision to go all the way over the top with that which it isn't and some parts they pull back you know and it isn't very b-movie type campy effects in some ways it's like with the bat suit that's not b movie at all that's money i mean that talk about that thing costs a lot of money to do and so it's kind of this back and forth and and i think that would have been a much different film i prefer the way that they've done it but i agree with you and you know i'm just sitting here reflecting i mean the scene with the three sisters i think that that also is some kind of shady special effects like when canada's nipples start spewing blood (laughs) i mean that was kind of dumb you know i mean i i do agree with you that you know some of the more frenetic scenes they lose the quality because that's a really frenetic scene the way the edits constantly jump back and forth i think that we lose some of the the power of those effects so i mean i i agree with you on on you know to that end for sure but i do think that this movie would have been horrible if gary oldman hadn't have been in it and and i know we've said repeatedly already that you know gary oldman wasn't the gary oldman we know today But he obviously was already incredibly prolific as an actor. And he did things on the set that got performances and got, you know, scenes to work in ways that I don't think would have happened if he hadn't have been there. I mean, a lot of the choices with like his performance in the beginning and how angry and feral he is. That was all him. Coppola wanted him to perform that in a more like frightening way, not so much as this pain, like this painful scream. It was supposed to be like a, an animalistic, I'm going to kill you scream. And he changed that. Another thing is like when Sadie Frost is filming that scene where she's like writhing in bed by herself, he insisted on being on the side of the bed and whispering like dirty things to her as she was doing it as Dracula so that he was actually saying what he believed that Dracula was saying to her in her mind telepathically. I mean, I think he got so much of these performances, not just of his character, but his fellow actors' characters, he pulled out of them things that I don't think another actor or a lesser actor would have gotten. So the complaints that I think are very valid, we've talked about about the movie, I think would have been tenfold if Gary Oldman had not been cast in it. Okay, yeah. No, I I can agree with that. Um, the last point of contention, contention, and the last thing I wrote down in my notes when I was watching the film was the use of, I guess I'm going to dub it as subtle or not so subtle foreshadowing. And it's m- most evident when Keanu Reeves' character gets to the, the Count's castle. And I was talking to you yesterday when we made our failed attempt at recording this episode. Thank you, landscapers, that William Peter Blatty directed The Exorcist Three. And I have gone on record as saying that I think that is psychologically one of the most terrifying films I've ever seen in my life. And I stand by that statement. And his very subtle use of foreshadowing, his very uh, subtle use of, of imagery that you, you think you see or maybe you saw or did I see that? That type of that type of filmmaking to me is so it's so terrifying and it's it just gets you at your core. I was experiencing the opposite of that effect watching the first 30 minutes of this film 
again, and it did take me out when, when Keanu or I keep, I keep calling him Keanu when, when Harker is at the Count's castle and all, you know, the shadow, his shadow in the background keeps manipulating and, and all these little things are happening, but they're happening so much that it's not a question of, did I see that? It's okay. Here we go again. Yeah. Okay. I get it. Yep. He's a vampire. Oh, I get it. He's, I thought the, the choice to, to oversaturate the, the subtleness of what was going on in the background. I thought that was uh, almost a deal breaker for me. You're curious on your thoughts. Yes, I'll, I'll say two things. The first is, I mean, I completely agree with you. I mean, anybody, please go back and listen to our Exorcist 3 episode if you haven't yet. My only second episode I ever did with Dana. I was still a podcast baby back then. Um, But, you know, I, I love Exorcist 3 for a lot of the reasons you're talking about because the of the subtleties that are contained within it. But I think that vampire films are just different. I think that when you're dealing with demonology that part of the fear is whether or not they exist because the demons themselves don't present themselves because even when they show their face they show their faces through us because we're possessed by them so we don't see them in their true form so it just lends itself to more subtlety in terms of the the horror and the fear vampires are a lot more obvious and you know and Coppola is dealing with a story that is well known everybody knows who Dracula is everybody knows he's a vampire and so I think that this same type of subtlety just isn't it just isn't going to happen. I mean, maybe they overplayed those special effects, but I don't think a vampire film is ever going to be as subtle as a movie about demons or about possession. And then the second thing I'll say is more so than the special effects that there there were some people that I've talked to in my circle that have a problem with foreshadowing as well, but it's it's through the use of the letters. Like it's so heavy handed of, oh, you know, well, I I think that this letter may be my last, you know, type type deal when he's writing back to, to Mina. And I think that that's an interesting critique because if I could go back and change anything with Coppola, I would want him to get rid of all of that, all of the letters, all of the ship logs, all, all of that. I think it, it doesn't translate well to film. And I think we lose a lot of the narrative power of movie telling when we constrain it to those moments where you just have to do, you know, footage of someone's handwriting and ink and then the ink being blurred by their tears, you know, to show us they were sad when they were writing it. I just don't think it works as well. And I had said at the beginning that Coppola wanted to pay this homage to Stoker's story. I mean, the movie was released on November 13th, 1992. And that was 80 years exactly after Bram Stoker's death. And it was the 95th anniversary of the book. I mean, everything they did about the release of this film, because the studio wanted to release it in May, and Coppola insisted on it being released on this specific day back in November, because he wanted to pay such homage to Stoker's story. And you can feel that in the film, but using those letters and for shadowing things through the letters the way that they do in the novel. I think that is one of the the biggest mistakes that he made. And I would love to see removed in order to kind of make the story and the movie just better. The last thing I want to talk about is there are two different cuts of this film that are readily available. I chose to watch when I, when I rented this movie, I rented it through uh, the Microsoft store on my Xbox and there was the unrated cut and then there was the theatrical cut. I chose to watch the theatrical cut because that's the film that came out and I wanted to get that experience. And I'm curious if you have seen both cuts of the film and is it worth my time to revisit the other cut? I have, but to be very honest with you, I don't remember what the differences are. Okay. Um, I'm sure there are differences, but I don't remember there being such a stark you know, delineation between the two, like there are like, for example, like the Lord of the Rings director's cuts, you know, are like an hour longer <laughs> theatrical ones. Um, I don't remember it being that, uh, that different. Okay. All right. I could be wrong though. I'll, I'll, I'll probably, <laughs> and I, I want to just share this story with the listeners. I, I told you yesterday that I, when I was renting the movie, I, you know, rent it HD option and I'm watching it on a flat screen television and the picture quality was garbage. I mean, it, it looked like shit and it wasn't because I had a bad internet connection. I mean, it just, the, 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 the transfer they used was awful. And I, and again, that took me out of the movie. And then when I was trying to do a little bit more research, I was on YouTube and I just typed in Bram Stoker's Dracula 
and somebody had uploaded a Blu-ray cut of the film. And I was like, well, why didn't I just watch this? It looked so much better. So as of recording this, you, if you haven't watched the film yet, and I'm not one to endorse films that are on YouTube, but if you want to just happen to, if you happen to come across it on YouTube, just know that it's a better version than what appears to be most of the VOD versions that are available for rent. So. <laughs> So Ashley, we like to give, we like to to grade our movies with how many stakes through the heart would you give this film? Zero being the worst, ten being the best. I will turn it over to you. How many stakes through the heart do you give 1992's Bram Stoker's Dracula? I mean, I would not be a a, tr- a true person to my word. I mean, if I didn't give it a, a nine, I would say nine. I, this movie has flaws. All movies have flaws. But I think it is a beautiful film in the sense of like the storytelling that gets done through Gary Oldman, through his character. And one thing we didn't touch on is like the themology of this movie. I mean, I think that it it helps us answer a question of is Dracula the bad guy? Because I'm not quite sure that he is. I mean, he does things that are bad, but is he the bad guy? I mean, look at the way it ends. And I think that you would have to argue that he's that he's not. And I I love it. I, I think it's a nine for Gary Oldman. I think it's a nine for the costuming and the makeup. I think it's a nine for the story because the story, there's a reason why it has remained since, you know, 1897. So nine stakes through the heart. Again, my favorite of the vampires, uh, it would certainly be Dracula. So. All right. And I will give it a middle of the road, five stakes through the heart out of 10 because it's you are I, staking my heart currently I, I don't think it falls into the bad movie category because i i think there was a, a lot of love put into making this film i just i'm going to give it a average score just right down the middle i don't think it's great i don't think it's bad i think it's a movie i need to explore a little bit more and perhaps my score would change somewhere down the road but right now it's it's not one that i'm i'm jumping to watch again like i will you say you want to go sit down and watch Fright Night next weekend or something? Okay, great. I'm in. You want to watch The Lost Boys? All right, let's do it. So that's just, I just don't feel that way about this film. And interestingly enough, the next movie we're going to be talking about will be 1994's Interview with the Vampire, another movie that I have not seen since it was theatrically released. Wow. I I mean, we're now getting to, so if, if Dracula is my favorite of the movies that we said from the outset, Interview with the Vampire is my favorite vampire lore, my favorite world of vampires, because it comes from the Anne Rice novels, which I just adore. So I promise I will try to contain myself and not get too much into book mythology um, next episode, but I'm really excited. And a shout out to my husband. This is the only vampire film he's actually seen. So he's very excited about our interview with the vampire episode. So wow. shout out to you, Tom. It's coming. Outstanding. And if people want to follow you on social media. Uh, yeah, please follow me at, at Ashley Schlafly. Again, please keep the DMs coming. Let's keep the conversation going. Let's start trolling Dana for not liking the movie more than he did. <laughs> and, um, you know, we just really appreciate it. All joking aside, we really appreciate all of you guys. And this has been such a fun, fun series because of y'all, because of the conversations we've had off the air. So keep them coming. Keep the suggestions coming. And we'd love to hear from you. And you have been doing a guest spot on another podcast uh, talking about Game of Thrones. Would you like to go ahead and plug that? Yeah, I just want to plug again the Planetos podcast at Planetos. Brett and Travis are just absolutely phenomenal. They just finished recording what will be a three-hour episode, a deep dive on the one hour and a half episode that aired this past Sunday. So tune in to that. They're they're really great. And I'll give a shout out to if you're a Game of Thrones fan, please also tune in to Shot, Shot on TV, their podcast on Game of Thrones. They had 72,000 downloads of their Instacast uh, a couple weeks ago. I mean, people really are following them and they're doing a great job as well. Both they and Planetos, top-notch Game of Thrones coverage. So check them all out. Absolutely. All right, Ashley, thanks for being on the show. We'll uh, we'll certainly be talking soon. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And my name is Dana Buckler and thank you so much for listening.